Good morning, FCBC Wallet family and friends. Thank you for worshiping with us in this online platform. This is the last week of the month, so shortly, Pastor Albert will lead us in the partaking of the Lord's Supper. So if you need to grab the elements and prepare it, now's a great time to do so. It is also a good time for those of you that are worshiping on Facebook and YouTube to say hello to one another, to like each other's comments, and to interact. I know it's not easy when we're apart in our homes, but this is one of the ways by which we can acknowledge and recognize and encourage and bless each other. So please go ahead and do that right now. As we enter into the month of September, when we begin a new church year, it is also a season of transition for our church family. After the Lord's Supper, Pastor Albert is going to lead a prayer of blessing over Deacon Dennis and Susie as they move on to serve at their family's church in Orange County. We're very sad to see them go and we pray for them because they've been such a blessing. So please join us in that prayer in spirit and also there was a video tribute that was set aside for them pre-service that if you caught you're able to see many messages from the pastoral staff and deacons but don't worry if you missed it it will play immediately after today's worship service. So stay tuned don't miss out see all the ways in which God has used them. Along the way Pastoral intern Ryan Wong will also be concluding his internship with us this week and finishing his final year of seminary interning at another church. This has been an ongoing process and this is a time in which we want to bless him so that he can make the most out of his final year to grow and be stretched and be prepared for pastoral ministry. Pastor Hanley will go ahead and pray for Ryan before his sermon. So please join us in unity of heart in that as well. Now back to reopening, we are in the final week of August, which also means it's the final week of our soft opening. This morning we had another outdoor worship service in the parking lot. And as we continue to glean experience and train people and purchase equipment and expand our technology, we're getting ready now to be able to take the shift over away from pre-recording and onto live streaming. So here's what's gonna happen next week. We're going to have the outdoor worship service in the parking lot at 8 a.m. Registration is required, but it is now open for all of you. More information to come. That service that will be live streamed on Zoom, which you can catch at home at 8 a.m., will then also then be saved and edited so that it could be premiered on Facebook and YouTube at 10.30 with service starting at 10.45, just like this broadcast. And so stay tuned. We're going to try to keep everything as consistent as possible for you so you're able to prioritize the corporate worship of God's people in our homes. But then also, as we make changes and advances and make decisions, we will inform you as well. Now, at the same time as our switch to live streaming and Pastor Albert beginning the Senior Pastor Series in September, we are also opening up many groups in a season called open enrollment. So if you are not currently committed to a group, if you're thinking of maybe switching a group, if you're maybe considering a different type of group, whether a community group that's open to non-Christians or a small group that is meant for Christians to go deep in their walk with God, this month will give you the opportunity to do that. So more information will come this week, but there's gonna be a link by which you can click on, then you can choose which groups that you're interested in so that we can facilitate a conversation between the leaders and you and see if you would be a good fit for a particular group or two. 
I'm excited about this because this allows us to regather together onto more than a campus, but to regather together as a church family in the midst of the community that we are in. So please be careful about this. At the end, you're connected to a church when you're connected to a group of people more than if you attend a service, whether physically or online. So we look forward for you to be a part of this, to take your next step in following Jesus by committing to community through joining a group. Meanwhile, as we look ahead to this month, we still want to continue to encourage those of you who have elementary school kids down to kindergarten to sign up your children for Awana. Again, this is a regathering of God's people around His Word. And Awana is such a meaningful and intergenerational disciple-making ministry for our entire church. And so it's not too late to sign up. This weekend, materials were handed out, but it is not too late for you to still hop on and sign up your kids and participate as parents in the lives of your kids, memorizing scripture, thinking through its implications, and being taught in groups as well as being taught by more mature disciple makers who are teachers and counselors and mentors. So sign up. It would be a wonderful opportunity to begin the school year together in this fashion. Meanwhile, the Red Cross Blood Drive will be on October 16th. So if you're able to give and or you want to volunteer, please go ahead and sign up with the Red Cross or email assimilation at fcbcwalnut.org. Finally, I want to be praying for us today as we're entering this season of change and transition. That God would take what he has done through our church and that he will help it to mature and blossom and bear fruit in this next season when we reopen our campus and we reopen our groups and we restart our school year and as we prepare for what is ahead of us. So I'll be praying for that today in the midst of all of this and I also want to just give appreciation and acknowledgement to the team of audiovisual, of design, of the people that have put together the online worship services for the last five months. You have been diligent and faithful and has it been a joy to work with you, communicate with you, and also make these online services possible. So as we transition to now a live stream and a preservation of that live stream for the online audience, many of us will continue to work together. But I want to acknowledge and appreciate you for the hard work that you've done and you know who you are as we communicate every week. Please join me now in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, God, for this time that we have together. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of seeing your faithfulness working out in our church family, especially during this month as we've been preparing for reopening. We thank you for all the things that we've been able to do and all the adjustments we've been able to make and all of the changes that has been needed and yet all of the flexibility and the diligence of people involved to bring us back to 155 at Fairway Drive and to open it up for the entire English congregation starting next week. We want to pray, Lord, that as we open, that you would unite our hearts through the senior pastor series that Pastor Albert will begin next week. And we also want to pray, Father, for us to return and regather as a people through our connection to a group and commitment to the maturity and to the betterment and to the growth of a particular group of people. So help us, God, to take the next step if that's what we need to do. And also help us, Lord, to see now 
this opportunity as being available for all of us and those that we are trying to reach, that people are not returning just to attend a session or a program or a service, but they are returning to be a part of our family. Heavenly Father, we want to continue to pray for your leading and guidance, especially for our government and for our leaders during this time. Father, as they're still leading us through the pandemic, as it's a political season and it's heated and it's tense and there's so many things that are said and so many sides that are offered and sometimes we could lose sight of how it is that you lead and direct our paths through our leaders to where we are only attacking or we are only being defensive instead of recognizing your sovereign goodness and will and power over us. So we pray, Lord, for our leaders, for our president and for his staff. We pray, Lord, for both houses of Congress. We pray, Father, for all the governors and everyone that during this tense time needs to make difficult decisions. We pray, Father, they would do the best for the people. And we also pray, Lord, that you will give them a fear of you. We pray, Lord, for their families. We pray, Lord, for their staff and teams. We pray, Father, for the ways in which they need to grow and be stretched so that they could represent the people well. And we ask God that we would engage in this process as we enter into the election season, that we would be knowledgeable, that we would learn, that we would grow about how we could be active citizens in this country that you have placed us in. And we ask God for your leading and for your guidance in helping us to be united as a nation and also be united as a people under God. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, for this upcoming reopening. We ask God that you would indeed bring us back in the unity of heart. And we pray, Lord, for those that are hurting and those that are lonely and those that are separated from one another for too long to where we could get caught up in just our own circumstances and our own brokenness. Father, that you would help us to find hope in Jesus. We pray, Father, that the good news would be even greater now, especially during a time of pandemic and of everything else. And as we've seen this week, how fleeting life can be in the lives of those that pass away too early. We pray, Father, that you be mindful of your people and Lord, that we would desire your face above all things. Preserve and keep us, Lord, but also use us and spend us for your glory. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen. Good morning, church. Welcome to the communion service. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took a cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat the bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know, today I want to focus on that phrase, do this in remembrance of me together as people of God. It's been about five months now we've been doing communion in our respective homes. And then we look forward to the time where we can come together to take the communion as a church body of Christ uh, this morning, some uh, of our people who came back from, from the drive-in uh, worship, they were able to experience that a little bit, not the whole body of Christ yet, but at least those who came back and observed the communion together. It is a meaningful reminder that we are one community. But brothers and sisters, let us look forward to the time 
where we can come back to the church and observe together as a whole body of Christ to remember the Lord and to uh, come together to worship our great God. Okay, let me lead you in the in the time of confession before the Lord before we take the elements. Our Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for calling us together to remember you. The whole focus is on the Lord Jesus, on the cross of Jesus, on your salvation. And before we come together for the elements to remember your body and your blood, Lord, I pray that you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, sins against God, sins against people, so that we can be sanctified and will be worthy to come together to remember the Lord, your goodness, your love, and your sacrifice on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite the congregation, those who are home, uh, get your elements ready that you have prepared ahead of time. And if it is possible, I want to invite you to stand together and observe the Lord's uh, Supper together uh, as I lead you in a process. As the Bible says, Jesus took bread and said, this is my body for you. Drink, eat in remembrance of me. Let's eat together to remember the Lord. And after the supper, he took the cup and said, this is the covenant in my blood for you, for the forgiveness of sins. Drink in remembrance of me. Let's drink together to remember the Lord. Let me close you in prayer. But today, I want to bring you together to come to pray of blessing for our deacon Dennis and his wife Susie. This is the last Sunday for them to be with our church. And then next Sunday in September, they will be moving on to the church that his son-in-law, Jonathan, and his daughter, Julia, uh, will be at. And we just want to bless them. And also today is the last Sunday that Ryan Wong, our intern, our youth intern, who will be with our church. And he will also move on to another church for his internship, at Bethany Baptist Church. So together, we want to bless them. So I want to invite you to keep standing, or if you are sitting, but uh, stand if possible, and just stretch your hands. Let me lead you in a prayer of blessing for them. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that in the midst of observing the Lord's Supper, in the midst of showing our unity in Christ, we are able to bless our two brothers. We want to bless our deacon Dennis and his wife Susie as they move on to another church, continue to be in the kingdom of God, uh, continue to be uh, in, in, in the presence of God, but serving in another location. We ask for your blessing that they will continue to be faithful, they will continue to be a blessing for the brothers and sisters uh, in uh, Lighthouse Community Church. And for whatever ministry that you have prepared for them, Lord, I pray that you will use them just as you have used them in FCBC Walnut. We pray for God's blessing and for God's presence and for God's uh, empowerment as they serve you in that new church. Lord, we also want to bless Ryan Wong. We want to thank you for his three years of internship in our church, blessing our youth, committing his life to care, to counsel, and to journey together with them. We ask for your blessing as well on Ryan as he continues to study at Gateway Seminary, as he continues to serve at Bethany Baptist Church. I pray, Lord, that you will use him to bless the ministry, to bless the people, and continue to equip himself 
to be used by God as a minister of the gospel when he graduates from Gateway Seminary. Thank you for blessing them and blessing our church as well, that we will also journey strong and be faithful to the Lord as we continue to walk with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us conclude with the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thy is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. Hello, FCBC Walnut. Before we jump into our sermon this morning, I want to take a moment just to recognize and thank our pastoral intern, Ryan Matthew Wong. This is actually Ryan's last Sunday worshiping with us officially and his, his internship has concluded. And I just want to say, Ryan, thank you so much for your fidelity to our youth ministry, just investing in our students in the areas of discipleship, preaching, counseling and care, and leadership. And I know that all of us as, as parents and all of our, our English congregation especially, we just want to thank you. Ryan will be moving on to continue ministry with another local church, a solid church, that he'll be serving and learning there. And so I want to take a moment just to praise God for Ryan's investment in our youth and in our church. And I want to uh, pray a blessing, a prayer blessing over him. So if you'll bow your heads with me and join me for a word of prayer. Father, we just are so grateful for our brother, Ryan Matthew Wong. He grew up in our church and went, went away to college. Then he came back, Father, on fire to preach the Word of God and to make disciples for your Son. And Lord, we're just thankful for the past few years where we were able to work with him. And I'm just personally grateful for the times where I was able to meet with him. And where we would talk about life, ministry, calling, preaching, and all the various topics that come with ministry. Father, we just want to pray a prayer of blessing over him as he goes forth and continues to learn uh, and continues to minister at another church locally. And so, Father, we just want to pray, Lord, that you would be with him. We want to pray, Lord, we know that the youth who uh, he has impacted will miss him dearly. And so we want to pray, Lord, that the youth would continue to carry on the legacy of the fruits of discipleship that Ryan has invested in him. And we know, Lord, that in our world, in our society today, that contact and communication can be kept quite easily. So, Lord, we pray that the relationships would continue to be built up. And, Lord, we just pray that you would bless Ryan, Lord. We are so grateful for him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today we are concluding our series from the book of Ezra. And it's actually going to be a much shorter message today. You know, we have our Lord's Supper uh, and... Uh, you know, for our outdoor service, we have the Mandarin service coming after. But for those of you who I'm preaching to right now, uh, we are online. So we do have a little bit more liberty to, to dig a little deeper into the application. But Ezra has been such a challenging book to go through. And Ezra actually ends with, with uh, quite a tragic conclusion, if you will. Anticlimactic is probably the right word. And so we saw what happened last week. We saw that Israel had a surface issue of intermarriage. But the deeper issue was idolatry. That first, the hearts of many of these Jewish men 
were driven by idolatry. They did not love God. They did not worship Yahweh. And so that's why their hearts were drawn towards violating the law and taking foreign wives. Then we saw that, that the problem was not so much marrying a foreigner, but that these foreign wives brought in foreign idols that caused these Jewish men, many of them spiritual leaders, to leave Yahweh and to worship these false idols. And, and very quickly, this idolatry would creep in and it would destroy the identity of Israel as the corporate people of God. In other words, Israel would one day fail to be the covenant people of God if they did not put a stop to the idolatry at hand. And we saw last week, the big idea from last week's message was that the real crisis is trying to deal with sin apart from Christ. The real crisis was, was not so much intermarriage or, or idolatry. Those are serious sins. But the real crisis is that they had no lasting solution. They had the law of Moses, which is good in, in and of itself. But the law is not meant to heal sin or to remedy sin. The law was meant to point out sin and to condemn Sin. And so they were left condemned. And that's what's, ha- that's what happened. They had to, they, they had to make a, a drastic or take a drastic measure. And they caused all of these Jewish men to go and, and send away their foreign wives and the children that were involved in those fa- foreign marriages. And this was tragic. Families were broken. People's hearts were broken. And this would have many Gen- this would lead to many generations of crisis for Israel. And so I've entitled our message today, Crisis Amplifies the Need for Christ Part 2. Crisis Amplifies the Need for Christ Part 2. And so if you have God's Word, will you take it and will you turn with me to Ezra chapter 10 once again? And today we are in, in verses 18 to 44. Ezra chapter 10 verses 18 to 44. And you'll notice a long list of names. Now we're not going to read every single name, but there's a long list of names. And so there's one point today, one point, a big idea, and plenty of application. So point number one, one point is the shameful record. If you're taking notes, the shameful record. And I give you this point because that's the purpose of this list of names. The purpose the purpose of including this, this long list of names serves as a record of shame. Why else would you record the names of the men who were guilty of intermarriage and idolatry? You see, Israel lived under the dynamic of an honor-shame culture. Very simply, those who are honored are honored. And they are listed in Scripture as honorable and exemplary. And those who are shamed, many times, their sins are recorded. Now, that's what I love about the Bible. The Bible does not hide the sins of even some of their great leaders. When Moses was sinful, it is recorded. When Abraham did something shameful, it is recorded. When Jacob is sinful, it is recorded. And when David sinned, it is recorded. So you see the sins of Israel. It's not hidden. It is recorded. And this is an honor-shame dynamic. But of this nameless, there are approximately 110 names. Approximately. Now, what's key to remember and to point out is the 17 are priests. 
10 are Levites and 83 of them Israelites. So approximately 27 of the 83 are spiritual leaders. Now considering that 110 names, this is a very small percentage compared to the total of returnees, but we know that it takes very little to spread and create a spiritual epidemic for all of Israel. So the threat of idolatry polluting like a virus and spreading and destroying the community of Israel was very real. Now, notice verse 18. Notice in verse 18, in verse 18 it gives you, it says, some of the sons of the priest who had married foreign women, and it gives you a list of names, right? And I, I did not list all those names, but you see right there that, that there were some of the sons of the priest. And then you see in verse 19, they pledged themselves to put away their wives, and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. So as we explained last week, they had to put away. This was not the same Hebrew word used for divorce. These were not legitimately marriages. They were dwelling with these foreign wives. And so in obedience to the law, they put them away. They send them away. Now, you notice that Verses 23, 24, and 25, once again, what I put on the slide for you is not the full verse, but I just want you to see, it says, of the Levites, spiritual leaders, right? And it gives you a list of name of the Levites. Verse 24, of the singers, these are the worship leaders. And it gives you a list of the names. And then in verse 25 and on, it says a list of names, and it says of Israel, the rest of the people of Israel. Now, I want you to imagine, of the Levites, what if all of the pastors in the Christian church are the ones who are guilty of intermarriage and idolatry? And then the singers. What if all of the worship leaders, those leading musical praise, are guilty of intermarriage and idolatry? What would that say about the entire corporate, you could say the church, if you will, universal. And then you could say local churches. What would that say about us? If the spiritual leaders are leading the way in terms of hearts turning away from Yahweh, then this leads obviously to no way, right? There is no way. There is worship. There is a worship of no way. There is no worship happening. And this impacted the people. Now we know that, that Ezra coming into this scene, as we explained last week, this did not happen under his watch. And the people coming back with him, this did not happen with, with them, and we know that there are, there's always a remnant of faithful people who abhorred idolatry. And they abhorred the sexual immorality that happened. And so there are people who are faithful. But here, the spiritual leaders, and, and this 110, this number of 110, they were ruining it for everyone. And the entire community had to take responsibility for the sin. And so I want you to notice just a few things. Okay, I'm not going to point out everything, but notice in verse 18, the family of Jeshua. You see that? The family of Jeshua. This was an important family. Jeshua was a co-leader with Zerubbabel in the time of Zechariah. This is very shortly after the return under Cyrus. So from the very beginning, during the first return from exile, there's a very prominent name, Jeshua, and notice that his family name is listed there. And so there were members of his family 
who had sinned. And they were guilty of, of sin. And it says, the sons of Jeshua. So, this was horrible. Now, you skip down to verse 44. And I just want you to see the consequences. It is truly a tragedy. Verse 44, all these who had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. And I'm going back to what I mentioned last week. This is heartbreaking. Do you think that these foreign wives would hate their Jewish husbands? Especially before the gospel was available. For deserting them, leaving them, and saying, I have to. It is the law. It is the Jewish law. Yeah, I think there would be some really broken marriages. Now, keep in mind, there's already a broken marriage happening with the Jewish man and his Jewish family and his own Jewish children whom he left, right? But you think these foreign wives would be angry? Yeah. And do you think their children would grow up hating their fathers? Absolutely. Do you think their generations and their their children's children would hate their fathers and would hate Israel? Yes. So there would be consequences of nations, of maybe these half-breed Jews, Samaritans, if you want to use a term that's familiar. There would be people who would grow up and they would, they would form people groups that would constantly be against Israel because of this sin. And so Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. Instead, they become darkness. They become a pollution to the nations. They fail to be a light to the nations. And they, instead of bringing fame to the name of Yahweh, they bring reproach upon the name of their God. And so it's only fair that if they bring shame on the name of Yahweh, that their names are put down in all of history for to be shamed for the world to see that they are guilty of breaking covenant with God. And that is the point. That's what we're left with in Ezra. I mentioned last week that 25 years later, you go to the end of Nehemiah and Israel is once again in sin, in the sins of intermarriage and in the sins of idolatry. Have they not learned their lesson? And so that is what we're left with. Ezra leaves us with this sad reality of the Old Covenant, that apart from Christ, they did not have Christ yet. They did not yet have the Gospel. They did not have the true power to reconcile their relationships. Yes, they could obey the law, and yes, they can attempt to reconcile relationships, and I'm sure that some of them were able to reconcile just based on the law, but ultimately they do not have Christ and the cross to point to, as an example. And so, so Ezra leaves us tragically. But we know that there is hope. And that hope is the same hope that you and I ultimately have. And the glimmer of hope that they had was Christ. And that leads to the big idea. The big idea this morning is that Christ bears our sin and shame. So the for the record, for the record, we can bear his name. Let me say that one more time. Christ bears our sin and he bears our shame. So that for the record, we can bear his name. I want you to understand this big idea. That again, the purpose of this list of names is to put on record for all of human history, the guilty parties here. But if you and I believe in Christ, 
Even if you've committed a crime and you're in prison, that's shameful. But if you repent and if you and I turn to Christ, what happens? We don't go down in history, at least in God's book. Of, and we are not included in the names of those who are ashamed and guilty. Yes, the world might know of our sins. But if you repent and if you turn to Christ, you bear his name. There's only one guilty name that goes down in history for you, and that's Christ. When Christ hung on that cross, God the Father saw him as guilty. And as he hung on that cross, all of our names was there. He was paying for our sins. And all of the shame that we deserved, he was bearing. The, Lord, the Father turned his face away from his Son. And so those of us who turn to Christ, we don't bear the name of guilty shame. Instead, we bear the name of Christ because he bore our shameful names. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the Christian perspective. This is what Ezra and Nehemiah's audience did not have. Now, you and I, we are all guilty. Not Maybe not of intermarriage for many of you. Maybe not of fierce idolatry. But you and I know that in our hearts, every time that we have prioritized another person, another pursuit, or someone or something more than Jesus Christ, that there are times in our lives where we've yoked ourselves to the various idols of this world. And every time we sin, technically, we give ourselves over to spiritual adultery because our hearts are given over to a foreign God in a sense of various idols of this world. But yet all we need to do is to truly confess our sin and to repent, which means to turn to Christ, to surrender to Him. And what happens? He forgives us. And He does not list our names among the guilty. And I want to give you three simple applications. Three applications that help us understand shame, the power to help us understand the power of shame as an emotion, to address how the world uses shame, and how Christians must not fall into this trap, and how we have hope in Jesus Christ. So, application number one, first, shame separates us from God. That is the function of shame. Shame did not come from God. Shame came from Satan. Shame makes us hide from God, actually. God does not want us to be ashamed because he wants us to instead feel guilty sorrow over our sin and to turn to him. Because he's the only one who can heal us and restore us. But instead, you know what shame does when you sin? When you and I sin, it's really hard to sing songs to Jesus with a clear conscience. It's really hard to pray. In fact, when we struggle with sin, and when we continue to struggle, even after we pray, it's, it's, we don't want to face the, the Word of God because we feel guilty, we feel ashamed. When you sin against someone, it's hard to face them because you feel ashamed. And so, so when you sin, you don't want the world to see you because it's shameful. So what do you do? You hide. You see what shame does for you and me? You know, it seems like when we're in the moment of sin, we're not that ashamed. In fact, we're either driven by our anger, we're driven by our lust, we're driven by our pride, we're driven by the moment and our emotions. It's only after the sin that we are left in shambles 
And we're left to pick up the pieces and the consequences of our sin. The consequences were, were real. They had to deal with broken families. They must have been ashamed, these men. See, it's only after the sin becomes real and the light shows how dark the sin is. That's when the reality kicks in and sin and shame leaves you there hiding from God, running from God because you don't want to face God and you don't want to face people. And that's why when we are afraid of being ashamed, we want to cover up our sin. You see, corruption in this world is that people know right or wrong. And the fact that they try to cover up their sin is because, one, they don't want to face the consequences, but naturally they are ashamed. And that's why the human race struggles with shame. It goes back to the Garden of Eden. What happened in the Garden of Eden? When Adam and Eve sinned, God came looking for them. Because that's what a God, good God does. He pursues His people. And what were they doing? Adam and Eve were hiding from God for the very first time. Who taught them how to hide from God? It's sin. Sin entered in. And they realized something was wrong. They realized God is holy. And so they're hiding from God. And not only that, that is the very first time that Adam and Eve recognized that they were naked. And so they made clothing out of some of the plants and they tried to cover themselves, which was insufficient. But they tried to cover their own sin and they couldn't. And God had to cover their own, their sin. Okay, so Adam and Eve sinned. That's what happened. You see, but Jesus comes and he covers our sin, right? And so what happens before Jesus comes is that we all bear the shame of Adam's sin. And we go on trying to cover up our own sin. Right? We're all from the human race. We're all from Adam. We're all, we all descend from Adam. And so we cover up our sin. Now, Christ, because we bear His name, we no longer cover up our own shame and our own sin. Christ covers us. That's the first thing. The first application is the shame separates us from God. Shame makes us hide from God. And Fear of being shamed makes us want to cover up our own sin, but we can't cover up our own shame and our own sin. Secondly, culturally. Culturally, the cultural and societal use of shame flows from the fall. Okay? And we are, we see society take on Satan's way of using shame to ruin people's lives. Right? We see how culture, they don't know how to deal with shame either. So what does culture do? Culture turns shame into a form of perverted justice. Some of you are familiar with the term cancel culture. This is from Satan. This is satanic. This is exactly what Satan did to destroy people and to destroy relationships. At a societal level, we live in a culture where people love to shame one another using social media to ruin people's lives. As if shaming someone is a form of justice. Now, I'm not talking about documentation of crime, abuse, or exposure of corruption. Yes, we all agree, criminals and abusers and corrupt leaders and people need to be exposed and, and they need to be submitted to not social media, but the criminal justice system. You see, putting criminals through 
Romans 13 and the criminal justice system is very different from shaming people on social media. Because as Christians, we know that shaming someone or canceling them does not bring true justice. Because if you truly have Christ, here's what happens. Once Christ captures your heart, and so I know that there's a lot of Christians who are into cancel culture, and you're just, you just might not be converted. And I want to say that. And so I just got canceled for saying that. Because once Christ converts you, what happens to anger? What happens? The gospel is a gospel of reconciliation. What happens to you is that maybe early on, you still have that anger. But once you experience that reconciliation power and the Holy Spirit seals your heart, there's no way that you can go to sleep at night being a hateful and angry person because the Spirit turns that hate and anger and that heart of vengeance into the fruit of the Spirit where your heart naturally reflects Christ. And the heart of Christ is one of forgiveness and you seek reconciliation. And even your enemies, you begin to love them. And your heart begins to cry out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And you begin to pray for your enemies to, to receive the gospel, as evil as they are. And that's what Jesus does to people. That's why the gospel is so powerful. That's why the gospel is the only instrument, message, and it's the only thing Jesus Christ is the only person who can bring the true justice and judgment that we want. You don't want your people, you don't want people who sin against you suffering in shame or guilt, having their lives ruined but still being in bitterness. You want them coming to a realization that they've not only sinned against you, that they've sinned against God. That's what you want. And you want them repenting and even confessing to you and wanting to reconcile because they realize that there is truth and there is a God and they become new creatures in Christ. And if that happens... In society, more and more, if people come to Christ, then you're going to see a change in society. We know that's easier said than done, and we know that that's a little bit of a utopian thinking, but we have to believe in the power of the gospel and in the power of the church. That's the second thing, is that society has misused shame in a shameful way because they don't understand how to deal with shame, because they don't have the gospel. And many Christians have turned in some ways, to cancel culture as well because they too don't have the gospel and they are not converted. And so feel free to engage with me on that. Thirdly, personally, we must consider the connection of shame and our reputation. I want you to think of what happens when your name is associated with sin. When you commit a crime, it goes on your record. Why? Because then... Your life gets ruined. You have a felony. It's very hard to get a job. It's very hard to get a job. When you commit plagiarism, your name goes on the record in academia. And it's really hard to get into higher education or to publish. When you're in the publishing world and you plagiarize, or you're, and you, when you're in the recording world and you plagiarize, your name is tarnished. Now some of this is part of criminal justice, right? When you cheat in sports, your name is tarnished and you get disqualified. These are all legal ways and these are ways where your reputation is ruined and your name becomes somewhat associated with cheating. 
Yeah, when you hear the name Lance Armstrong, what comes to mind? When you hear the name Barry Bonds or Pete Rose, what comes to mind? Now, when you hear the, the phrase Houston Astros, what comes to mind? Cheaters, right? Now, I'm not hating on Houston Astro fans. I'm just using a, rel- a, a, a relevant example in sports. There are cheaters out there, and the name gets used and tarnished. Now, you understand this. Now, when you hear of pastors, spiritual leaders who fall into adultery, abuse, a power, and they fall out of ministry, their name gets shamed. And their churches get shamed as well. Now, that's how our world works. There's an association with your name and shame. And for some of you, you come from cultures where you understand that if you get bad grades or if you aren't successful in society or if you do something wrong, your family disowns you because they are ashamed that you bear the last name or the surname of the family. Now, what kind of savior then would want to bear our shame? What kind of God, knowing all of our dirty sins and all of our family history and everything that's gone wrong in our lives, would want to say, I want that individual. That is my child. I've given you this illustration before. But I remember going to the principal's office more than anyone could count. I know I went to the principal a lot as an elementary school student, a few times in junior high school. And I know that every single time they had my mama speed dial, she'd come into the office and have to claim me and say, that, yeah, that's my son, that's my child. And obviously I'd get in trouble. Imagine God. Every time we sin, and people look at us and say, look, you hypocrite, you call yourself a Christian. Now we have two options. We can say, yeah, you're right. I'm a hypocrite. I've made a mistake again. I'm not perfect. I can't be a Christian. And you can walk away. Or you can own up to the fact that Jesus pursues you. And if you're willing to confess your sin and repent, Jesus, what kind of God just claims you and says, yeah, he or she is a Christian. Yes, that is my son, guilty of sin. That is my daughter, guilty of sin. And I am going to claim him or her. And I am going to restore him or her. Because that's the only way that Jesus is going to change us. What kind of God would do that? What kind of Savior would bear the reproach of our sin? I want you to just close your eyes if you need to. And imagine yourself that first Good Friday. I want you to imagine yourself before the cross. What if that was you? What if you're, sta- you're there, pinned up, treated like a criminal? You are naked, just like they were in the garden. You're ashamed. You know you're innocent. But people are hurling insults at you. You've been beaten. You've been abused. Torn away from your loved ones. Even your friends have turned away from you. And even your closest friends, let's call them Peter. One of your supposed friends, Judas, let's call him, betrayed you. But your other friend, Peter, has denied you, cursing himself, saying, I don't know this person. Imagine that all these sins that you did not commit, sexual immorality, rape, abuse, think of the most heinous sins in this world, murder, 
Right? You're like, that's not me, that's not me. Liar, proud, abuser, all these things, sexual abuser. I mean, Jesus died for some of these people who have repented, and they're coming, coming back to him. So all these heinous sins being thrown at you, your name being tarnished, your family hearing this, your father turning away from you, cannot look upon you. That's Jesus. That's what he bore. He was silent because he knew that he would pay for your sin. It's not just a transaction. It is a transaction, but it was emotionally, physically, spiritually painful for Christ. And because of that, that was the cost. And because of that, when we sin, we do not send away people. When we sin, we do not go to the dire measures of Ezra and Nehemiah and we don't go through this shameful conclusion because of the immense amount of shame that Christ bore for us. And he was cut off and the Father momentarily sent him away. That's what happened. That's what Jesus did for us. Beloved, the hope for Ezra's audience is the same hope for you and me. It is the hope of Jesus Christ. Their Messiah is our Messiah. And 2,000 years ago, the greater son of David, the Messiah of Israel, Jesus Christ, died for our sins and he rose again. So beloved, confess your sin, turn to Christ in repentance, Surrender your life to him, and he will be your savior. Pray with me. Father, we come before you today. And we are thankful for the word of God. As we look at the tragic ending of Ezra, we're reminded, Lord, that we do not have to live in sin and shame because you bore our sin and shame, and we bear your name. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to watch over us. We pray, Lord, that you would, you would save anybody who watches this sermon, who does not know you as their personal Lord and Savior, that you would draw them to the saving knowledge of your Son because he is the only hope for our world and our nation. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Beloved, will you please rise where you are? And let me send you out with a benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in God's peace. Amen.